You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to class tonight. Good to see everyone. Is it raining again? I actually saw sun, and I squeezed in a run today, and then it's raining again, yeah. But you know what I saw? I saw on the long-term forecast this yellow ball and I'm, with no clouds and no percentage underneath, which may mean we might see some sun, but it'll be a... For the next break, yeah, that's, yeah, long, long, yeah. <laughs> it might have been the moon, yeah. Man, I have never seen such... Well, I'm recording all this, but everybody on the internet will know how rainy it is, though. I've never seen so much rain this fall. It's like, it's crazy. It rains in November, but not this much in October, but anywho. Well, welcome to class. This is good to be here. Good to have everyone here. And um, we are heading into our next session of Water from a Deep Well. And I have to say this as we dive into tonight. Uh, This week and next week, I'm on strange ground for me. This is, the, the two things that we're going to be looking at are, are a bit of a stretch even for me in terms of drawing from um, Christian experience of God throughout history. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at um, the sacraments, which I think will, will be quite, uh, quite good. But again, it's, it's, it's not my tradition to really dive into the sacraments. And then next week we'll be talking about mysticism. And I'm guessing most of you, when you look at me, you think mystic, but really, uh, I don't know very much about mysticism, but it's going to be an interesting ex- exploration. So, and then after that, we'll be diving into some maybe more familiar territory. But tonight, we are going to dive in to the spirituality of the sacraments, and what is called windows, right? So let me begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll carry on. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this day. And your word calls us to number our days. And so teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so we pray that uh, you would speak to us tonight, that you would guide our conversation. I mean, what we look at tonight not just be academic or even just kind of a strange exploration, but we pray that there be intersecting points with our heart and our life with you. And we ask these things, not in our own strength, but we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes these words. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So I want to begin our look at the sacraments tonight by looking at a church building. Not our church building, 
but a medieval church building. Uh, oh, okay, so we're going to, we're going to um, travel through time. We're going to be like, uh, does anybody ever remember? Did anybody ever listen to Focus on the Family stuff? There was this show, and, and in the show they would go into this imagination station, and they'd be whisked away to different time periods in history. So we're going to go into the imagination station tonight, and we're going to be whisked away into the 13th century. Are you ready to go? Yeah, yeah okay, all right, we're ready to go. So we are now living in the 13th century. And if you were an average person, if you were Joe or Josephine Cerf, living in the Middle Ages, in the, in the 1200s, what would your life look like? Well, for starters, I'd be really old. Al, you'd be really, really, really old because the lifespan wasn't that long. In, in the, and it would be a hard life. Yeah, absolutely. You would be living in what would be known as Christendom. So if I ask you what Christendom, what is that? Does anybody know what that means? When I say the word Christendom? Where Christians lived? Yeah, a little bit. King, kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of the Pope? Yeah, a bit like that. Christendom is the idea that in the Middle Ages that the reality of Christianity, the reality of the church and all those things permeated every aspect of life, from politics to economics to buildings, everything was saturated with this understanding of Christianity, at least a medieval understanding, okay? So you're living in a time of Christendom, and that's where Christianization of basically every aspect of life, from birth to death. Now, if you lived in a village, at the center of the village, what would you find? A church. You would find a church. And depending on the town, the, you know, the church would uh, vary in size. And the high in the Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages, um, was actually the time period of church building. I don't know if you realize that. There's a lot of church building that takes place in the 1200s. Um, and when you look at church building in the 1200s, it gives you a lot of patience with our church building project. Because ours is like, well, this is like three years late. Well, Yorkminster Cathedral in York, up in the north, took only 250 years to build. And how many fundraisers? <laughs> yeah, for the city, <laughs> forward in faith, uh, time to build. Yeah, they would have quite a few. <laughs> now, what role did these churches, so throughout, let's say in England or throughout Europe, you'd find these huge churches. Now, what role did these churches play? Well, for one, if you're living in the Middle Ages, these were places of gathering. They were really important places of gathering. They would be places of protection, actually. They would protect you from the elements. It's probably the only place where you could be really warm. Yeah. Because your home would not be very, your home, you know, wouldn't, would be quite, most people's homes would be uh, very airy and you wouldn't be able to afford to have fires going all the time. And so the place where you go to to be warm was actually the church. 
Maybe a lot of people gather together. It'd be a place of refuge that you would go to during the time of the war, a uh, time of war. The other thing about the church, it was a place, it's the only place where you'd see vibrant colors. Because at home, Karen, you're not going to have art on your wall because you're just barely making ends meet. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to feed your 17 kids. And, and, <laughs> and you know, you have to... And so you're not going to be buying art and you can afford art. So in a person's home, you would have maybe a few sticks of furniture at most, maybe a chair or two, place to lie down. No colors. But if you want to see vibrant colors on the floor and on the walls and on the ceiling and then in the windows you go to a church and so people would go and they'd enter into these churches and on the walls be color covered with uh, colored um, paintings um, and this would be striking and so they would see see paintings depicting stories from the bible or maybe stories of saints Uh, in the center there'd be a crucifix there'd be a cross with jesus on the cross um, and would emphasize the suffering and the humanity of Jesus. There would be furniture. Um, yeah. And the other thing about the church is that much of the important events, almost all the important events of your life are going to take place somehow with the church. You know, from the time you're born, you're going to be baptized at, you know, at the entrance of the church. It's a, you know, that's, that's the place of baptism where a baby would be baptized. It's a place where you'd be confirmed, your faith would be confirmed. It's the place where you would get married, not in the church, but just on the outside of the church. Um, there's a lot of things that would take place in the life of the church. And it was a place where when you die, you would be buried just outside the church in the graveyard and it's a place where the community would mark the lord's day where they'd celebrate feasts during the church year and the other thing about the church is that it was a place of light vibrant light huge stained glass windows and the light would just shine in and most importantly at least for our conversation tonight, they were the places where the sacraments held a new shape, a new force. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So, just for fun, let me ask you this question. How important to you is the design of a church building? Like some of you may be Pentecostal, be like, I don't care, it could be a tent. We just got to preach Jesus, it's just a tent, because we're all going to go to heaven soon, it doesn't matter. So it's a tabernacle and we're okay. Some of you are like, no, 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 we need, we need more incense. Where's the incense here, you know? Okay, on a scale of one to ten, one being, I really don't care. It could be in a pub, it could be anywhere. We just, I just want to worship. And ten saying, you know what, no aesthetics and beauty and art, those things within a church and how a church is structured, uh, really actually matters. So on a scale from 1 to 10, uh, put up your hand and show what number you would be, because we all have 10 fingers, right? So, 2, 10, 7, <laughs> that's just a saying hello, yeah. <laughs> 8, just a 5, just a 5, a 2, a 4, Laura, what are you? 5, 5, 4, Brent, what are you, six? Okay, let me see what we got on on the internet. 
three. So my kid, three, really? <sighs> so disappointing. Uh, Teresa, five. Teresa, that's not it. Okay, yeah. Okay. Ah, Mar Martha, you're six. Okay. Eight, Janet, yeah. Yeah, oh, Denise, you got one, two, three, two, four, eight. Jack, you're on the beach, so you're five. Okay, yeah. Okay. 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 I'll, I'll let my cards out. No, I'm not fully there, but I think it matters a lot. It matters a lot, uh, the, the space that we're in now. Again, that's, that's preference, but... Okay, so let's talk a little bit about these cathedrals. Now, I'm going to talk... There's a reason why we're talking about this. We're going to come back to this in a second. Um, there's a lot of building going along in the, the, the Middle Ages. And, there, and in these cathedrals, there's two things, at least two things, but we'll talk about two things. There's two things that are really, really important about these buildings in terms of how they're built. First is the geometric design. Hey, I'm just connecting you with Phoebe. There you are. <laughs> is the geometric design. Uh, everything in the church... In, in, in these churches and the way they're built were built so carefully that everything was meant to be in perfect symmetry has anybody ever been to a like a really big cathedral in europe or uh, yeah yeah so you go in there and everything is 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 perfectly symmetrical at least that's the way it's supposed to be um the other thing you would find is um yeah that, that the whole building would be put together with mathematical symmetry um, I remember going to St. Paul's Cathedral in, in London. And St. Paul's, has anybody ever been to St. Paul's? You ever been to the very top where you go into the, it's called the Whispering Gallery? So it's, it's, it's kind of right, right up at the top where the, where the dome is. And you can walk around there. But you can be on one side. I did this with my kids when they were little. You just go up and you go, Hannah, Hannah can hear me. And she's way over on the other side, but they can hear you. Is the, the, the way it's, it's built, the sound will travel around. This is quite cool. So geometric design is the big deal. The other thing is the use of light. Light symbolizes God's revelation. And so in Gothic cathedrals, they're designed to let in as much light as possible. And which is quite the feat in these old cathedrals because, you know, they're pretty heavy. It's all made out of stone, right? And so they had to come up with some strategies to be able to build these big windows stained glass windows and not have the whole building fall on itself and so this is where you, they introduce one of my favorite terms in in a in a in architecture is the flying buttress uh the flying buttress makes all the difference it allows these walls to stand and allows these arches to to, to um to be built right so all of it was to maximize the amount of light shining in so you have this perfect uh, geometric symmetry you have light shining in and so what these churches were is they were seen as the perfect place in which the sacraments would be carried out so this brings us to our topic on sacraments I just want to make sure I'm not missing any oh Salisbury Cathedral Notre Dame yeah St. Paul's York Minster yeah that's the one I went to eh Laurie that's so nice up there so interesting so that one's interesting because it's built, I think it's like three buildings built on top of each other. Yeah. 
I think there is, yeah, there is, um, there is, uh, so Al asked the question, is, is there a connection to the geometrical symmetry and the movement of the stars? And, and I think there was some consideration. I'd have to look that up a, a bit more, but when I read Dante, <laughs> which I'm reading a lot right now, um, the stars and the planets make a difference, right? Um, because in the medieval world, and this is interesting, in the, in the medieval world, when you walk outside the cathedral and you look up into the sky, and it's not like Vancouver, but it's actually a clear night, what do you see? Yeah, but if you're a medieval person, so you don't know what a Milky Way is. So what do you see when you look up? Stars? What else? Planets, yeah, stars, planets. What's that? Painted, well, yeah, when you go outside, when you look up, what you're actually looking at is the dwelling place of God. You're looking at the heavens where, where the higher up you go, the more perfect things are. That's the, that's the medieval mindset. So when you look up, when you're drawn, so everything's drawn up, and even in these cathedrals, your, your attention is drawn upwards. Because in the medieval world, when you look up, you're not looking at outer space. You think about the modern term, it's outer space, it's just space. No, no, no. You're looking at, at the world as a cathedral and God is, at, is reigning over all things. It's a very different way of thinking. Anyhow. Um, this brings us to the idea of a sacrament. So, without looking at your notes, <laughs> without reading ahead, um, what is a sacrament? What is a sacrament? Does anybody know? What's that? Yeah, the Eucharist would be a sacrament. Okay. But what is the definition of a sacrament? You're absolutely right. That is one of the sacraments. Oh, good. Yeah, it has a connection to an oath or to a commitment or a promise, maybe. Very good, yeah. Yeah, very good. So there's spiritual markers. What else did you say, Vince? Okay, yeah. So uh, spiritual markers at different stages that are connected to different stages of your life. Very good. Yeah, that's excellent. It's funny, it's a word that we use all the time, but a lot of people, uh, and, well, it's not an always easy way to, uh, to, to describe no, rituals, <laughs> sacred rituals, an act of holiness. Okay. Okay, so what is a sacrament? Well, it's a, it's a physical or a tangible, concrete thing or action that gives you an insight into the spiritual realities, okay? The sacraments join the physical and the spiritual. So some theologians define a sacrament as, quote, a promise, so that gets, yeah, I read your point, a promise of God joined to a visible physical sign of the effectiveness of that promise. So a sacrament is so named because it identifies a place where God is promised on oath, as it were, to meet God's faithful people. So sacraments are windows, not literal windows, they're windows, they're entry points that allow us to gaze into spiritual realities where we can encounter God and receive grace. Okay? Yeah, some of you say is symbol. 
to point us to the divine. Yeah, but in the medieval world, it's more than a symbol. They're actually windows. They're actually gateways to connect us to God. So we'll talk about this a little bit more. Which leads us to another question. What is the relationship? How can we possibly think that looking at something physical can lead us to God? Like, why would something physical lead us to the spiritual? Can material things lead us to spiritual realities? Well, here's one of the things we need to realize. One of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity is that it is very, very material. It is very earthy, right? In the Christian mindset, matter matters. Stuff matters. Bodies matter. God is a God who creates stuff. That's who God is. He's not the Greek understanding of God, which is so way up there. No, no. The God we worship, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created matter. Okay? And we know from some teaching in Scripture that by looking at physical things, we can experience the wonder of God. Right? So we read that in, in Romans 1. Right? Uh, we read that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare what? The glory of God, right? I always think of that story of uh, when I was an atheist and I climbed this mountain in China. I climbed uh, the mountains called Taishan. Anybody been to Taishan? Yeah, okay. So you climb to the top of Taishan. I was there with my buddies. I was an atheist. They were all atheists. And we see this incredible sunrise and my heart was stirred. And it was stirred with a sense of gratefulness. But I had no one to thank because I didn't believe in God. But God creates the world in such a way that, that our hearts are lifted into a sense of wonder. So the Christian faith, in many ways, is a sacramental faith. Through objects and physical actions, we can learn about who God is and we can encounter God. So let's, let's keep going on this and see how we do. The danger, and some of us good Protestants, we know what the danger is. The danger is we can look at something really beautiful, and rather than our hearts be lifted up to God, what do we do? We worship the thing. That's what Paul warns us about in Romans chapter 1. He says they close the blinds. Rather than having their hearts lifted up to God by looking at his beautiful creation, instead they just look at the creation and say, let's worship this. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is whenever we take a thing and we equate God with that thing, right? So, we cannot reduce God to a thing. That's the issue in the book of Exodus with the, uh, when the, when the creating the, uh, the golden calf, right? Um, it's not that God isn't strong like a calf. It's just it reduces and it distorts who God is, Right? And so God, he teaches us in the second commandment. What does he say? You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, is, am a jealous God. Now, that is the problem for humanity, idolatry. But this, again, is where Christianity is unique. Because who stands at the center of our Christian faith? Jesus, that's always a good answer. It's Jesus. Yeah, Jesus stands at the center of our faith. 
Now we have to see this. In Christianity, the ultimate place of encounter between God and humanity is where? Not in a statue, not in an altar, not in a temple, but in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have the incarnation of God himself, right? And so if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. It is in the incarnation that reveals the heart of God, that he loves us so much, that God the Father loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The, the word became flesh, and as Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> he moved into the neighborhood. And so Christianity is unique because our faith is built on a person and an event, and we believe that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Sitzer puts it this way, Jesus Christ is God's self-portrait, God in human flesh. God is a real person, neighbor, friend. Jesus makes God of the universe visible, tangible, concrete, and accessible. So the incarnation is like a stained glass window through which we can know what God is like. All right? We can, we can catch a glimpse of the heavenly realities. Jesus reveals God by being God. So what are the implications to this? I'm, I'm setting this up so we can dive into the sacraments because I, I can't just start talking about the Eucharist without setting up what, what this is all about. Well, it means that the materials that we use for worship, like bread, juice, water, needs to point to Jesus. Everything needs to point to Jesus. In Jesus, God and humanity come together, the material and the divine. And in Jesus, we also are given life. Okay? So, this is important because in the Christian faith, matter matters. The incarnation, the word became stuff, he became flesh. And so, in our faith, things matter. And so, things can be windows through which we can connect with God. Okay, so let's talk about that. Does anybody know any good uh, ex-Catholics ex or no? <laughs> or, or practicing Catholics, it's okay. Um, does anybody know um, how many sacraments there are within the Catholic Church? Seven. Seven, okay. Can anybody name them all? I, I didn't put them in your notes, I hope you realize that. <laughs> okay. Vince, what do you got there? Baptism? Okay, so uh, the Eucharist? Yeah. Marriage? Confirmation? Ordination, do we say that? Yeah. And then you got extreme unction, which is your final rites. What else? What are we missing? Marriage or confirmation? Oh, we're missing one. Confession. A confession. Penance and confession. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, so these are, I mean, these are the medieval. Let's see. How, did you guys even put any of them down here? No, you guys didn't. No. <laughs> um, okay, these, these sacraments were not meant to be abstract, but they're to intersect with our day to day life in, in the medieval world, at least. Um, and this is different. Like for us Protestants, how many uh, sacraments are there? 
We believe in sacraments as Protestants, just so you know. In the Alliance, we do. What are, how many sacraments do we believe in? Baptism is one. Communion. That's just two. <laughs> just two, yeah. So, but we'll, we'll talk about that tonight. Um, baptism in the, uh, in the medieval church was indispensable for salvation. It was your entry point into the life of the church, right? And so that's why the font was right at the beginning, as soon as you would walk in, right, at the entrance of your church. Confession was private confession. You'd uh, say your sins in the ears of, of priests. You do this once a year, typically. Has anybody ever done confession? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> Nestor? <laughs> yeah, Theo, you did, yeah. And how often would you do it? When I was a kid, like once a week. Once a week, oh wow, yeah. You can't do it before you take Eucharist. You can't do it before you confession. Okay, yeah. And how often would you take uh, the Eucharist, Vince? So you do, would you do uh, confession every week then? You never, <laughs> in theory, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like all the answers. Two, two question mark, two, three, yeah. Um, so you'd have baptism, you'd have confession, marriage, right? Two people would become one flesh. Extreme unction, which is the kind of last rites. What is the point of last rites? Does anybody know? Last chance. <laughs> last chance? Well, not really, because you've, in a way, you, 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 you're brought into the church. Maybe your last chance to confess some sins. But do you know what, what it's in theory for? The point of extreme unction is that when a person is dying, it's not easy. And so you pray for them and you anoint them so that they would have strength to make it to the end. It's something to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Confirmation, that's usually done by a bishop. Um, it's separate from baptism. Ordination through ritual, a man becomes a priest. Now, and we'll talk about the Eucharist in a second. These sacraments were held in high honor, held in great reverence, because they were important ways of, of receiving grace. That's how they were seen. And that's why the space was so important. That's why, I have in your notes, did you see my cool map of the church, of a cathedral? Did you notice anything about that map, or about that, that layout? What's that? It's in the shape of a cross, yeah. And where would people sit? Do you know what part of the cathedral where people would... Actually, they wouldn't sit. They would stand in the Middle Ages. Do you know what that's called? The nave. Yeah, that's the nave. And do you know what modern world we get from that? The navy. <laughs> it's basically where, where people would gather, right? Or it's the idea that um, it's, it's, it's like the mother ship that carries the people to heaven, right? So yeah, um, what else we have? 
The other thing about the, the, the way a cathedral would be laid out is that the center point would be the Eucharist, which we have to talk about. It was the, you know, the, the, the Lord's Supper. That would be at the center. Now notice what's not at the center. If you go into any Protestant church, what's at the center in the sanctuary? I was going to say the drummer. Um, <laughs> the PowerPoint, right? What's at the very center? The cross, but at, on the center of the platform? The pulpit. Why? Because a word is being preached, right? But in, in medieval churches, you won't see a pulpit. You find a table, right? Or an altar, right? That's, and that was really important. And that's because preaching was not that big of a deal in most medieval churches. Um, there, were, there were some good preachers, but not, it's not a really big deal. And, and the other thing is that as Protestants, we look back at this, we look at some of the practices of the sacraments, and we say, you know what, some of this smacks of superstition. Some of this, instead of being a window to God, you've forgotten about God, and the object has become really special. And so the story goes, in, in the medieval world, is that you would, be, you would have people who would take communion. And they take the host, they take the bread. They weren't holy enough to take the wine, but they take the bread, and they keep the bread stuck in their mouth. And they go home, and they take the bread out, and they put it on wounds, or they put it on their crops, because this is the body of Christ, and therefore special and it could have magical powers. You see how it can get a little distorted, right? But the sacraments were really important. And they were important, um, I think, partly because in the time period, literacy was low, and so symbols meant a lot. I think that was part of it. But it, for at least... Uh, well, at least for the last 500 years, this idea of, of, of sacraments has been a little controversial ever since the Reformation um, because there's some confusion over it, right? So you think about the Eucharist. What, the Eucharist is the Lord's Supper. And so there's lots of questions when you approach the Lord's Supper as to what's taking place. What are some of the questions that the church has fought over over years when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Is it the literal body? And I mean, Jesus says, this is my body. Is it really his body or is it? Yeah, that's transubstantiation. And when the priest says, says the words, so the, the ordinary bread, ordinary wine becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, right? Um, yeah. On the other side, what, what do other people say in terms of the, 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 the bread and the juice or the bread and the wine? Yeah, it's symbolic, right? It, it's, it's about, it's memorial. It's something we remember. Now, there's another view. There's actually a couple other views, but there's another view that says, you know what? It's not literal, and yet it's not just memorial. Something happens when I take communion that's more than me simply remembering, and yet I don't buy in this whole transubstantiation and so there are different perspectives on this um, and in the past there has been a lot of abuses when it comes to the sacraments but simply because there's abuses doesn't mean this idea of the sacrament is not useful 
And so what I want to do is I want to look at... No, I should just look at two sacraments. I'm going to look at four sacraments tonight and see if there's something in these that we can recover as a church today. Now, at the end of this, you could be like, I think David's out to lunch, and that's okay. Um, but I think there, there may be something that we can, we can retrieve, okay? So what I'd like to do tonight is look at four sacraments, okay? Everybody okay online? Nobody's a... Uh... David's a heretic, David's what? No, hey! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's look at four sacraments. I know we should look at two, but I'm going to look at four. And we're going to look at baptism, the Lord's Supper, marriage, and then I want to look at dying and burial. Okay? Uh, baptism. Let me ask you this, and, and you be open to share. And if you share, just be brief, you know, fairly brief, and I'll, I'll repeat it. Um, have a seat wherever you like and sit up front or anywhere, anywhere you like. Um, does anybody want to share what their experience of being baptized was like? You're not in a lot of detail, but just, you know, something unique about your baptism? Or some experience you had being baptized? Yeah, excuse me. Um, I liked when um, we were doing the next step. Yeah. And John Kelsey's very demonstrative and Kelsey's prayers. I didn't come from a, an aligned church, but we were baptized in all the things, and there was a confirmation later. But I really liked what he said about, you know, the dunking down in, in the Yeah. So the symbolism of the baptism. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, John Hawes teaching on the weekend. I the importance of that. That's good. Yeah. So there's something that so uh, John Hawes was teaching about baptism and just the, inc the incredible symbolism of being buried with Christ and raised to new life and the washing away of sins. And yeah, it's, it's quite powerful. So what, what, um, because I am baptized, however, you know, I don't remember it or I was raised. Were you a baby or like an infant? Yeah. yeah okay. I was yeah. raised in a Christian home. Yeah. Now, what do you call it if you're going to be baptized yeah, you would call it adult baptism. Because like, I was baptized as a baby. I was uh, in, in the Anglican church, and yeah. I don't remember it. Um, and so I was baptized as, as an adult as well. So it's just it's, it's adult baptism. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're making a choice, right? So there's something to that, right? Yeah. Anybody else want to share? I'm just going to see online. I was baptized at Kakwa Lake Laurie. Well, I remember afterwards feeling physical warmth flooding through my body. That is so cool. Well, I was baptized in the Pacific Ocean in December. I don't remember the warmth. <laughs> but I do remember it being a, like, I, I, I remember looking up through the water up at the sky like I just is the water was in my face but I was under the water and coming up and it was a very powerful experience and the, the other thing I experienced from that was 
real difficulty the, the night before I was baptized. Oh, I didn't sleep the whole night. I was just felt really a lot of spiritual warfare. And then afterwards, I had a lot of struggles um, after my baptism for, for a couple months. And so I, I remember there being a lot of battle, a lot of spiritual battle around it. But the actual moment of baptism was quite a powerful experience. I felt God's favor as it went under, even though it was freezing cold. But uh, yeah, it was quite a, a, a powerful experience. Anybody else want to share? Uh, I was being spiritual. Okay. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Norm. Yeah. And what I remember was that not the actual experience, but the reason I wanted to be baptized was the reason how Jason was baptized. And so he was following his. Right, so you were baptized as a teenager because you wanted to follow in the steps of Jesus. As Jesus was baptized and you wanted to be baptized. What was your experience in, in being baptized? Do you remember? Uh, nothing specific. Yeah. I was in a, in a lake. Yeah. Yeah. Every June and camp, yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Good. 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 Well, it's interesting because you think about baptism. On one hand, I'm in a lake. Millions of people are in lakes, maybe not in December, um, but people go into lakes all the time, right? It's just water. I grew up every day in the summer baptizing my brothers. Well, in a way, <laughs> pushing their faces under water. And they would, in turn, gang up and baptize me over and over again. So you have the same action. We're in water, H2O, and there's a lot of dunking. And there's a lot of coming to the surface. There's a lot of dunking. What's the difference? It's ordinary water. It's ordinary going under the water. And it's ordinary coming up out of the water. It's ordinary stuff. But when it's baptism, it's a window into a spiritual world. Do you see what I'm seeing? I think that's a really good picture of a sacrament. It is a window. And not just a window, a glimpse into a spiritual world. But it's an entry into the spiritual world because my guess is that some of you, when you were baptized, had a profound experience of the Holy Spirit. And I know many people have had that in their life. So it is ordinary H2O, but there's something more going on. And I like what Michael Green says this about baptism. The whole of the Christian life in time and in eternity, in a sense, is encapsulated in baptism. The Christian life is a baptismal life and is all about dying and rising with Christ in this world and hereafter. And it's about dying to Christ, living for him, dying for Christ, being raised to new life. And we die daily. That's the that's picture of the Christian life. So the Christian life in many ways is a baptismal life. And we could disagree on a number of things when it comes to baptism. What are some of the debatable things about baptism that churches fight over? Immersion versus sprinkling. Yeah, immersion versus sprinkling, right? 
Oh, you're sprinkled. It's not enough. <laughs> Backwards or forwards? <laughs> Once or three times. Right? Yeah. Age, yeah, like a baby, how old, you know, what is the age of consent? So people say, well, in the Bible, how old do you have to be to be baptized? And the Bible actually doesn't say. The amount of preparation, very good. How much preparation do you need to be baptized? And how many times? Some people say, you know, I really messed up, so I want to be baptized again. Well, okay, really? Can you? Is that right? There's a lot of questions around baptism. Uh, but I think one thing we could all agree on is that baptism marks the Christian's, kind of the beginning point of the Christian's journey to transformation. Should a person be rebaptized if they have not been walking with the Lord? I would say no. I say you confess, you, you repent, you come to Because if I was to be rebaptized every time I stop walking with the Lord, well, I'd be baptized quite a bit. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? Now, the big question is, is, I mean, one of the questions is, is, you know, if a person was 15 or 16, but they didn't really, they kind of did it because their parents wanted them to do, and now they're older, and they, yeah. And there's different opinions on that one. But when we look at our baptism, we need to recognize our baptism, this act of ordinary water going under the water, um, is what Martin Luther says, the daily garment which the disciple is to wear all the time, every day, suppressing the old person and growing into the new. And so when you're baptized, what are you, what, what are you, what are you celebrating? What are you, what, what realities are you marking? What, what can you see through this window? Well, you see that you have been forgiven because of Jesus. You, you can see when you're baptized that you are no longer dead in your sins, but in Christ you are a new creation. That you are united with Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That you've been set free from, you've been set free for. Your sins have been washed away. And we're journeying day after day into the Christ-likeness. And I came across this interesting prayer on baptism. And it's from the Book of Common Prayer. Listen to this prayer. And pray it if you want. Deliver them, Lord, from the way of sin and death. Open their hearts to your grace and truth. Fill them with your holy and life-giving spirit. Keep them in the faith and communion of your holy church. Teach them to love others in the power of the Spirit. Send them into the world in witness to your love. Bring them to the fullness of your peace and glory. I think that's a beautiful picture of baptism. So baptism is a window through which we can have experience spiritual realities. Right? Now let's look at the Lord's Supper. Now you think about it. Again, you think about it. Once a week, oh, I want to make sure I'm, uh, the actual Greek language about baptized, baptized into the name. Okay, good. Um, you think about the Lord's Supper, especially during COVID. What does the Lord's Supper look like? Well, it's this two-in-one thimble cup-ish 
thing that we have maybe at the front or in the pew rack in front of us. It's a plastic wrapped container that you pull off and it's very hard to pull off the top layer to access the wafer without accidentally spilling, right? You all know what I'm talking about. So you finally get the wafer, which is hardly a wafer. I don't even know what that's made out of. It, it, is, it might be styrofoam, I'm not sure. It sure tastes like styrofoam, okay. And then you open up and you get a, a little sip at most of grape juice. I mean, what is that? But when we say this is a body of Christ, that he is our head and we are his body, and by taking this bread, taking this thing, that we belong to one another and he is our leader, when we do that, something happens. It's changed, isn't it? Something as, 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 you know, these little plastic cups, but there's something. When I take a little sip of this grape juice-ish, I'm reminded of the fact that I am who I am, not because of anything I do, but because of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, that he has set me free. And it's such a simple little thing But it's a window into sublime realities. This is who we are and this is why we are who we are. Now, let me ask you, have, have any of you ever taken communion and had a profound experience of God in taking communion? Yeah? Nobody wants to say yes. I know you, I know you have, but you j I, I won't make you tell the story, but you can just nod if you have, okay? At Easter, yeah, especially at Easter, on Good Friday? Yeah, when we've just been reflecting on what Jesus did on the cross and um, the suffering servant and the weight of our sin. Especially if you're in a, um, if you've ever been in a, um, a tenebrae service. You ever been a tenebrae? It's where the lights slowly go out until it's completely dark and there's scripture reading and then there's communion. It, it's quite powerful. We, we've done it here a couple times, years ago. Um, yeah. But here's the thing, it's something so simple. It's something so simple. It's, it's juice. Well, my goodness, it's not even wine. You don't even get the burning sensation. It's, it's, it's a little juice. But there's something powerful about it. And when I take communion, sometimes my mind goes to God's grace, how it's never changed. But then sometimes when I take this juice, when I take this bread, if I'm struggling in life, now there's nothing nourishing about this little piece of styrofoam. But when I take the bread, when I take the juice, I feel strengthened for the day and for the week to come. And one of my favorite images is the image of the Lembus bread in Lord of the Rings. Does anybody remember Lembus bread in Lord of the Rings? In Lord of the Rings, for the hobbits to keep going, 
they were given by the elves, this bread, but you take a little bit of bread and it'll sustain you for the journey. And I'm, I'm positive Tolkien is, is, is drawing on, on the idea of the picture of communion. Because this bread sustains Sam and Frodo all the way to Mount Doom. Anyhow. What happens when we take the Lord's Supper? Well, we can encounter the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We can remember his great grace to us. When we take communion, we can examine our hearts. You have a question, Mike. Why do we do uh, communion? What's that? Why do we do communion every week? Come to Rail City. Come to Rail City. <laughs> yeah, we do it differently. I think at Town Center, how often do you guys do it? Every two weeks, I think, yeah. So we, uh, we offer lots of different things, right? Well, I mean, if you went back to the 18th century, you would take it twice a year, right? So, I mean, throughout history, it's all, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's done differently. That's <laughs> a good question, though. It is a good question. You're an elder, you answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> what else happens? We confess, we examine our hearts, confess our sins. We find solidarity in sin and find solidarity and forgiveness. We can intercede for others. And we're reminded of our mission. This is what it means to be a Christian. I plant my flag. I belong to Jesus. I am by his grace. Right? Through ordinary bread and juice. Now marriage. Let's talk about marriage for a second. Because now marriage, I think marriage in many ways acts like a sacrament in some way. It, it is a window. Because we read in, in, let's say, for example, in Ephesians 5, that that marriage acts as, as a window pointing to greater spiritual realities of, of, of uh, God's love for his people, Christ's love for his church. And at the center of marriage, what do you have at the center of marriage? The kiss. No. <laughs> the doves. No. Um, the unity candle. No. The mother-in-laws. No. Um, what what's at the center of a wedding ceremony. The vows. The vows. That is why vows are very important. And you guys know how I feel about personal vows. You should know. When couples say, we wrote our own vows, I'm like, that's okay. We're still going to do the traditional ones. Oh, but we I know you wrote your own, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> now, here's the thing. When you get married, you say ordinary words. Ordinary words. But something, something changes. From the beginning of saying these words to the end, something changes. Philip, remember this. this is going, you guys were just married, so take notes. Get a pen out, right? Okay. Because at the beginning, you're going to say things like this. I take you. Right? I take you. Which means you're making an exclusive choice. I take you. I can sleep with a lot of women. I can sleep with, you know, I can do whatever I want. But I take, I choose just you and you choose just me. Right? And then you say this, you can say, I choose you to be my wife. Or I choose you to be my husband. And here's the thing, and I always say this whenever I do a wedding. After the wedding, if you ever could travel, in COVID times, if you could ever travel, and you have to write down the next of kin, your next of kin, 
You're going to write your spouse's name down. Deborah, you're paying attention, right? You can take notes. You're getting married soon. Yeah, okay. Right? You're going to say, this person is, after we leave this wedding, this person is closer to me than any other human being, even blood relatives. Because the Bible says, as soon as we walk out, we are one flesh. Closer than any two people could ever be. Right? We walked in as two people, we leave out as one flesh. And you say things like this, I'm going to be your loving and faithful husband, I'll be your loving and faithful wife, which means I'm choosing to love you. My life is going to be characterized by the choice to love you, not just when I feel like it. And then, this is the part I always say, is you have to have in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, right? Why? Because stuff happens in marriage, right? Stuff happens. People get sick. Stuff happens. And so what you're saying is, like, regardless of what happens, we recognize stuff could happen, most likely will happen, but it's not going to break us apart. And then you say, as long as we both shall live. So beyond your 10th anniversary, beyond your, what do they call it, a seven-year anniversary, when, when couples split after seven years, is they, they, they call it, or seven-year itch, or they call it... Um, yeah, I know, there's, there's things. But, I mean, I recognize stuff happens in marriage. And, and many of you may, maybe have had a, a broken marriage in your own life. I recognize that. But at the end of the vow, you're saying, this is my solemn vow, right? We enter as two, but we leave as one. That's a pretty powerful picture of what a marriage is. And, and it's God's idea. And I always say, I was talking to a friend of mine today. I probably shouldn't say this. Uh, see if anybody said marriage reflects our relationship. Okay. Record is 102 years. Thanks, John. <laughs> 102 years married. Really? Um, now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer when it comes to spiritual discernment. Just so you know, I'm not one of these guys like, I can just sense, I can, I'm not very good at that. Usually I'm wrong. Um, except when I marry somebody. More often than not, I can discern whether or not God's favor is upon this marriage. I don't know why, but I can usually sense it. Now, I don't tell them. <laughs> you know, you guys aren't going to make it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, this is what I'm feeling. Do you guys want to keep going? No. Um, because, again, I could be wrong, right? <laughs> But there's something about when, when, when a couple gets married and they become one flesh and they take their vows seriously and they're doing this before God, before each other, and before friends and family. I'll tell you, you can feel God's favor. And the other thing is um, there's nothing more beautiful than a Christian marriage. It's God's... It's God's invention, right? It's God's idea. And you've known that. And I, I'll, I'm going to put them on the spot, but when I walk into Alan Merle's home, I can discern that Christ is the head of your home. 
it, it just it comes out in your home. I know I'm making you embarrassed and all that, but it, it's true. And, and, it's, and it's because Christ is the head of your home. And I always say this to couples when they get married. I said, may it be that when people come to your home, they say, you know what, there's something different here. There's something different about this place. And that's why I think that this, you know, two people saying words, I take you, I take you, I mean, it could just be words and mean nothing. Or it could be a window into this beautiful picture of the two becoming one. Does that make sense? Now, the last thing I want to talk about is on death and burial. Okay. Let's talk about death. Well, here's the thing. As Christians, we should talk about death more often than we do. Throughout most of history, if you read Christian writers, they talk about death all the time. Life is about preparation for eternity. But we live in a world where we do not talk about death at all. And we deny its existence. We, we, we come up with terms. What are some of the terms we use to avoid the word, the person died? They've passed away. They've, yeah. <laughs> That's usually the one that comes up. They've passed away. And a lot of people today try to insulate themselves from the reality of suffering, aging, and death. Even funeral homes are in the business of making corpses look like they're alive. Widows and widowers are often attended to for a while, but then neglected. And people feel awkward around others who have lost a loved one. And death becomes the elephant in the room that everyone tries not to notice or talk about. But as Christians, we should not shy away from talking about death. Why? Because at the center of our faith is a death, right? At the very center, the crux of our faith is suffering and death. It's not even on the outskirts, it's at the very center. And Jesus' death has transformed all other deaths. In fact, the Christian faith makes us come face to face with our fears regarding death instead of repressing them. Why did Jesus die? Well, he died to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. Okay, so how, does this, how is this a sacrament? Well, maybe there are some rites or there's some actions that we can do in order to help people prepare for eternity when they're dying. Maybe there's some physical things we could do that would serve as a window into the spiritual reality, preparing a person for eternal life. What are some things we can do? To you prepare wills, yeah. Yeah, actually, you have to prepare wills. Like. Right, so a person who's, who's preparing to die can, can, can do that, can, can do some preparation work so that it's smoother after they die. What can we do to people who are dying? What are some things that we can do? Show them love, show them love? yeah, not shy away. So show them love. What does that look like? What are some things that we could do? I should look at you guys. Oh, you're you're silent bunch tonight. Visit, visit, visit people who are dying. No, no, 
acknowledging that they're going to die. That is a big one. That is a really big one, and it's hard to do. It's like, oh, you know, I'll see you. We'll see. I remember going to see someone in our, in our church. For some reason, I do a lot of funerals, and and it sounds strange, but I love doing funerals more than anything else. I really enjoy funerals. It sounds weird, because you're on the cusp. You're you're you're. It's it's right where people are asking questions about the mysteries of life. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But I remember there's a woman in our church. Um, her name was Anna. Some of you may know her. She was young, and she died of cancer. And I remember going to visit her in the hospice. And I finished talking to her, and I prayed with her. And I just said to Anna, I said, you know what? I won't see you on this side, most likely. And I just looked at her. I said, I'll see you on the other side. And she goes, I'll see you on the other side. And we said goodbye to each other, knowing that that's when we're going to see each other again. And she died the, the next day. But there's something powerful about that. Not saying, oh, don't worry, I'll come back next week. I knew she wouldn't be around the following week. And so there's things that we can do. We can pray for the sick and the dying. We can acknowledge great difficulties in this stage of life. Paul teaches the Thessalonians that we're not to be like those who are without hope. Right? And sometimes, you know, we can say things, and sometimes it's awkward, and sometimes you could do things that you think are meaningful, but maybe misinterpret it. I'll tell you this one story. It was where I got everything wrong. I shouldn't. But I went, in a, uh, I went to visit a person in the hospice. I'd visited him a few times. And uh, he was a great guy. He's an older guy, but he was dying. And uh, I saw him, and I just said, uh, and I didn't know he was Catholic in his background. He's very strong Catholic. And so I said to him, I said, are are you ready to make your peace with God? And I think he thought I was going to do extreme unction, last rites, like put coins on his eyes or something like that. And he got so mad at me, he told me to get out because he wasn't ready to die. And so it was one of those cases where I got everything wrong, but there might be some things that you can do that, that are right. There's some things. I think, like, if you were to, let's say, read words of truth and comfort to someone who is dying, what would, what would you read from Scripture? Psalm 23. What was that? Psalm 23. Psalm 23, yeah. What else, though? What other passages? Revelation what? Yeah, Revelation 21. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Last, Yeah. Towards the end of Revelation. John 14. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Anything else? What if you... Yeah. Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Yeah, do not be anxious about anything. That one, yeah. 1 Thessalonians 4 would be a good one. I actually, when I go to visit somebody, I actually bring... um, a smaller version. I'm not Anglican, but the Book of Common Prayer has great prayers for those who are sick, those who are dying, and often I'll just read those prayers. And, and I'm often asked to come and speak to people or to pray with people as they're dying. Um, and it's it's quite a it's quite a privilege, but it's also a holy moment too. 
When you're speaking to someone who's dying, there's four things as Christians we need to assure them of. Here's the four things. One is that after you die, you will continue to exist. And if they're, you know, in Christ, that they will continue to be loved and cared for after they die. So you communicate that. Secondly, we find a place of belonging after we die. We're, we're actually going home. A place that will be more home than anywhere else. And we, are, we will be received by the Savior who loves us and redeems us and will be safe in his love. Thirdly, we're assured of the future of not floating on some cloud as a ghost, but our future is resurrection. We'll have a new body. I'll have more hair. That's the hope, right? And no, that's important, though. Well, resurrection is so important, especially when you're talking to someone who weighs 50 pounds because their body has been ravaged by cancer. So your future is you will have a new body. And a restored body. Yeah, with someone who's dying of, of Alzheimer's or... Um, yeah, or, yeah, or someone who, um, you know, if you're talking to a family of someone who is, who is, you know, violently killed, just that they will be resurrection and their bodies will be made whole. And the fourth thing is this, is that our relationship with our departed ones will can live on, that we are part of a communion of saints, great cloud of witness that surrounds us, and we are knit together in one communion and fellowship. That we are connected still. Yeah, when we close our eyes, we'll open them in heaven. Yeah. So here's some concluding thoughts tonight from, uh, on the sacraments. One, I think we need to remember the material nature of the Christian faith. God creates stuff. Stuff matters. And so we need to cultivate an earthy spirituality. And Jesus uses a lot of earthy terms, right? And Jesus' teaching talks about sowers and seed and sheep and sheep shepherds and wineskins and fathers and sons. When we look at sacraments, we're reminded of the earthy nature of our faith. And we remember that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. <laughs> the second thing that we can learn from this is that the sacraments teach us that grace comes to us as an, as an objective reality. There we go. That the sacraments teach us that grace comes to us as an objective reality. Now here's the thing, the Bible doesn't tell us how. How is it when you take this styrofoam piece of bread that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and says, look, you are part of the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. How does that work? Doesn't say. We don't know. How is it that when a person is put underwater and brought up, that they experience the presence of God in such a powerful way? We don't know. But we, we participate in it into our dying days, knowing that God meets us in these moments. And the sacraments have the power to transform us into living sacraments to the world. 
Now this brings us back to our churches, to our Gothic churches. Because what are the two things about the Gothic churches that they emphasize? What are the two things? One, geometry. geometry. Yeah, ge geometrical symmetry, right? Harmonious. Everything is done in harmony with each other. Okay? And the second thing was light. Yes, these huge stained glasses, stained glass through which the light would shine, symbolizing the revelation of God. Well, is that not a beautiful picture for the Christian life? That we are to live in such a way that our lives reflect, that our lives are consistent, harmonious to what we believe to be true. This is what we know to be true. This is what we believe. And this is my body reflecting it. And is it not the call of the Christian life to be windows, to be, to be like the stained glass through which God's light shines into a world that's very dark that needs to see God's light. And so we are called in many ways to be like these cathedrals, right? Where God works in us and through us to carry out his purposes. And there's a mystery to that. Are we going to be windows to God's grace? That's the question I want to leave you with. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.